0: This is Circulating Ideas, recorded live at the 2019 American Library Association Annual Conference in Washington, D.C. I'm Steve Thomas. My guests today are longtime friend of the show, Becky Spratford, independent readers' advisory trainer and creator of the RA for All blog, and Grady Hendrix, best-selling author of Horror Store, Paperbacks from Hell, and most recently, We Sold Our Souls. With library budgets constantly shrinking, it's getting harder and harder to provide the resources your library patrons want and need. That's why the folks at Mometrics Test Preparation created the Mometrix e-library. Through their e-library portal, Mometrix offers study guides and practice questions for over 1,800 different exams, covering college entrance, graduate school, nursing, medical, teacher certification, civil service, I'm counting this on my fingers, I'm running out of fingers, and many other careers and fields of study. All fully customizable and at a fraction of the cost of printed books. It's like having an entire library of test prep materials all at your fingertips. So save space, save paper, and save money with Mometrix eLibrary. To get a free demo and 10% off your first purchase, visit goelibrary.com and let them know you came from circulating ideas by using the promo code PODCAST. That's goelibrary.com, promo code PODCAST. So Grady, can you tell me a little bit about how um, you used libraries growing up and how you got into wanting to be in the library as a kid?
1: Well, I was sort of raised by libraries, like Tarzan was raised by apes. I was raised by libraries. Uh, my parents were divorced, and so I would always be waiting at the library to be picked up. Or my dad worked at the hospital, the medical university library, where they had great books about uh, gruesome diseases. And uh, my mom was taking night classes at the College of Charleston. So I was in there reading their like village voices and things like that. But even before then, I, I, libraries have always been a really big deal to me. And, and I, you know, when I was a kid, like really, really young, we had, I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, in this little suburb called Mount Pleasant. And we had the Mount Pleasant Public Library. It was just a tiny little hut. Uh, I mean, the, the place was the size of a living room. And uh, my librarian was Ms. Earhart. And um, I was addicted to this book called Robert the Rose Horse by jo- Joan Helbronner, And I always had to get it out of the library. And so, I would go in every week, I'd get my books, I'd get Robert the Rose Horse, I'd come out the next week, I'd return the books, I'd return Robert the Rose Horse, I'd go home, and I'd start getting really anxious that I didn't have Robert the Rose Horse, so we'd get in the car and go to the library again, it wasn't that far away, and get Robert the Rose Horse again. I think, you know, I looked at the call slip at one point, and like, this was back in the day when you stamped those at the front, I think I was the only person to check it out for like years, and, um, and, and it was this really, you know, Miss Earhart, the librarian, always had it, it was always in there, and... um. Gosh, I think it was last year, I, I was talking to my mom, and I found out why I always had Robert the Rose Horse, which was um, that it wasn't that it was always there. Is that Miss Earhart, our librarian, had seen how into this book I was, and she knew how devastated I would be if it wasn't there. And so she had hunted down a copy, because it was out of print, and this was the, the 70s, and she hunted down a copy, bought it with her own money, put a call slip in the front, put a call thing, number on the spine, put a library stamp on it so it looked like a library book, and she kept it behind the desk so that whenever I wanted Robert the Rose Horse, it was always there. And, you know, it, it's funny to be talking about this now, because about two months ago, I found out Miss Earhart had, had passed away. Uh, and, you know, I never knew her first name. I, I honestly didn't even know she was still alive. But... I, there's an element where it's sort of like, oh, a well, small town Southern librarian's passed away. You know, it's like, well, who cares? But I care because she taught me that libraries weren't just places you got books. And, and I think this is a hard thing for librarians to remember because they're fighting with budgets. It's their job. It, they're dealing with homeless people coming in. They're dealing with people fighting over the computers, all this stuff. But libraries are really important it is the one government service the one funded service that takes care of people's souls that takes care of the best part of them that that lifts people up that gives them this for free and at a really young age you know miss earhart taught me that libraries weren't just about books it was a place where things were safe and they were secure and they were stable and they were a place where people were kind and that was their job to see what you needed and to help you with that. And, and so for me, I can't say enough about librarians and libraries. They mean so much to me. And to see them get defunded, to see people act like they're nothing more than glorified video checkout clerks, it, it, it kills me on a certain level. I feel like, you know, and it's more than a job. I think it's a calling for people.
0: And how much of an impact on your life would you say it was? Like, what, Do you think you'd even be a writer if it wasn't for libraries?
1: No, absolutely. Libraries taught me everything. You know, it's it's funny. Um, the, the down because I eventually I moved out of them, you know, away from the Mount Pleasant Public Library into the downtown Charleston Library and it was this castle. It was in, a, like, with turrets and battlements and all this. And it was painted, like, Pepto-Bismol pink. Like, pinker than Betty, Becky's sweater right now. And, like, it was always this weird thing. This bright pink castle that was the library in the middle of downtown Charleston. And I never understood why. It was, and no one knew. They were like, oh, it's just always been this way. And then, eventually, like, when I was getting older, I started getting into conspiracy theories and all that. And, you know, you'd find the books about conspiracies and in the library and the Mysteries of the Unknown series and all this. And I... Uh, And I found out why this was this bright pink castle. Uh, There'd been a a slave rebellion, or maybe a a fake one, no one's quite sure, in the 1820s in Charleston by a guy named Denmark Vesey, who was a a freed slave, who was a a well-to-do businessman. And he either led a slave rebellion or was framed for leading one. But um, he and all his compatriots were hung and all the white people in Charleston freaked out that, oh my God, slaves might rise up and kill us in our sleep. And so they built this castle. There was the arsenal and they built it to look like a fairy tale castle to remind them like, this is strong. This is this iconic -er image of safety and a fortress. And then in the like 50s, they like painted it pink to make it less racist and like, and, and turn it into the library. But it was... And so, library. It was like that was on the first time. I think it was fourteen. I was like, "Wow, everything has a secret meaning." Like, like the world is shaped by history. It's shaped by the like forces, like racism, or things we don't even know, we don't even see, but they 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 put a footprint on the world. So, I mean, for me, libraries have taught me everything.
0: Well, um, you um, generally write horror um, with a couple of ex- exceptions, but uh, I want to talk. A- I've talked to Becky about this in the past, but genre fiction in general doesn't always get the respect of the general overall literary world and that includes horror, sci-fi, fantasy, all that kind of stuff. Why do you think that is and what do you think people are not seeing in this or what is up their rear end? (laughs) To put it unpolitely.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, in some ways it's, it's, it's the genre's own fault. I mean, you know, when I told my mom I was writing I got my first book down I'm like I'm writing a horror novel I could like see the light die in her eyes um, but then when I was like oh I'm writing a book about a haunted Ikea she's like oh that's really funny like like the horror really got stigmatized as a genre in the 90s because the horror publishers like really like the, the big publishers were buying up the little ones and they were putting out so many horror paperbacks and they were cheap and there wasn't a lot of quality control I mean there were good books in there but there were so many there was a lot of quality control and Serial killers were big. So it was book after book after book that was really gory. There was a lot of violence against women. They got really into like a lot of creepy sexualized lines. And the covers were in this arm race to see who could outgross each other. I mean, even I was talking to Lisa Falkenstern, one of the cover artists. She's like, I stopped doing horror covers in the 90s because they stopped being funny and clever. They just started being gross. And she moved over to romance. I was, so I feel like when, when that died out in the 90s and those, those horror lines all shut down, it left this idea that horror and Porn and misogyny and and ultraviolence were all sort of linked, and and I mean I put that on the publishers. They wanted a buck, you know. We can't blame them. Um, And you know, and I do also think you know uh, a lot of genre fictions in paperback. And it's not until the last twenty years that libraries have really embraced paperbacks as much as they they you know they do hardcovers. And so there's a lot of small reasons, um, but geez, man, like horror, you can't get away from it. I mean, The Walking Dead. There's a vampire every time you turn around. There's a zombie. It's it's so huge.
0: Well, talking about the paperbacks, you have a book called Paperbacks from Hell, which talks about the rise of paperback horror in the 70s and 80s, Um, kind of the Rosemary's Baby, all the way through Stephen King and all the way through there. Um, What was was the state of horror before that, and what kind of things did did that kind of era usher in?
1: So, horror really didn't exist as a book genre before Rosemary's Baby in '67. Like, like, they were like suspense stories or thrillers, or occasionally you'd see the word horror, but it wasn't a, a genre. It wasn't a literary genre. It wasn't a marketing genre. Um, and so, Rosemary's Baby, and then, like, a couple of years later, The Exorcist and Thomas Tran's the other, were all huge hits and huge hits for grown ups and huge hits that people would read and that were considered respectable. And so that unleashed this deluge. But of course, you know, as the 70s turned to the 80s, all these public. Publishers discovered the real money was to be made in paperback, and you know it was. This stuff would go into libraries in hardcover, but you know it may be in libraries in paperback, but get be de-assessed because it would just get banged up so fast. And there was more new material coming in. So what's weird is doing these books. I've um, doing paperbacks from hell. All the books for research, I'm getting it like paperback swap shops and library book sales and friends of the library book sales, but not in libraries because they're just not on the shelves. And so one of the things that's been really cool is I've been working with this publisher, Valancourt to bring some of these books back into print um, with the original covers done in mass market size. And libraries are starting to order those. So it's nice to see these go full circle. And like, they were not in libraries. Then they were in libraries briefly. Then they were gone. Now they're back again.
0: And was this the kind of stuff that you read when you were a kid? I mean, is that what interested you in writing this book? Or what got you interested in this in the first place? Oh, God,
1: no. I didn't read these books as a kid. The covers were way too gross. They scared the hell out of me. And the covers don't even have to. They're not even that gross. But, like, they just terrified me. Like, you know. And so I read mostly, weirdly enough, men's adventure fiction as a kid. Because my dad was a big World War II buff. And tons and tons of sci-fi. It wasn't until I was, like, writing horror that I'd go into these paperback swap shops. Which are, like, my bookstores. Like, I like a bookstore without a playlist. Like, or an employees recommendation table I like just the piles of moldering paperbacks and um I was seeing all these authors i never heard of like who are who is Barry who is barry wood why are there so many omen novelizations like what and so i just started reading them and as i read them i realized there was so little info out there and like you start one thing that's been a real joy about this is to sort of talk to the artists who did the covers and the authors and and you know just hear about what they did and what they went through and sort of what this world of publishing that's gone now was like it's just this lost you know island of publishing that's kind of forgotten
0: well, if you didn't read it growing up, what was it that sort of drew you to it, to want to write it in the first place then? Why, why was that your chosen genre, that what you were drawn to?
1: Yeah, I don't know why I'm writing it. You know, I feel like I'm just writing about the world around me, like haunted Ikeas and, you know, your best friend's possessed by Satan in the 80s. Like, like, to me, that's just sort of life, and it turns out to be horror. And, you know, I guess if it's anything, the two things I really like about horror is, one, um, it's very structured, um, and so it's like... Horror has a real structure to it. If it's a zombie book, you know sort of what the general structure of a zombie book is. If it's like a sort of Ten Little Indians or Then There Were None or like a slasher thing, you know, kill, kill, kill. There's a structure, and so you can play with it. It's something to bounce off of, something to riff on. You can, you can take it in a new direction. You can make it funny. You can make it scarier. You can make it more realistic. But there's a core structure, a core some genre conventions uh, to work with, um, which I really enjoy. And the other reason is, I think on a more sort of pretentious level, like horror is the only genre out of all of them, literary fiction included, that really sits with death. That like death is, in the corniest horror novel, death is central. And really that's the big uniter. Like, you know, the one thing everyone at this convention has in, in common is we're all going to die. And, and so I really am drawn to a genre that, that successfully, not always successfully, sometimes in a terribly ham-handed way, sits with death.
0: Well, I'm going to bring Becky in here for a second because I know she's got a little spiel she's got about that horror is one of those... Um, genres that appeals to emotion, and that's really what... It's, oh, okay. it's, it's knocking you back with an emotion, so can you talk about that a little
2: bit? Yeah, sure. Um, and I agree with Grady, though. The other thing it does is it let you safely look at the dark side of life, both of humanity and of what's going to happen, because we are all going to die, and it's a great way to look at it. So horror is an emotion. It's all about the way it makes you feel. I often say to library workers who have trouble helping horror readers is look, it's just like romance, and they look at me like I'm crazy, or it's just like gentle reads, and then again... What What is wrong with you? Because it's all about how it makes you feel. They are different emotions, but these books make you feel something real. I like to say it's like magic letters get put together in words, get strung into sentences and paragraphs that make you feel something so real you need to put the book in the freezer and be away from it, right? Or you fall in love in a romance book. That's magic to me, and that's amazing. The other side of this is because it is such an emotionally driven genre, it helps you deal with emotions. So in the July issue of Library Journal, I did my second annual horror preview. And I got quotes from a lot of authors when I was at StokerCon about why horror, and you'll see it in there in the July issue, but I talked to people and and Brian Keene and uh, Gabino Iglesias talked about how there are very few emotions that everyone has and fear is one of them. Um, and uh, another up-and-coming author, Eric Guinard, who just won a Stoker Award for a story collection, said he's actually used horror, and this is in there too, this quote, to help deal with some of his own personal demons and his own personal issues. And I think that's really important about horror too. When the world is a dumpster fire, you either go you know, watch the Hallmark Channel, who are having record numbers or you try to find something even worse because it makes it all feel like oh I can do this if it's not a giant zombie or you know a a curse coming back from the dead to get me
1: Yeah, no, actually that's really, really smart. I hadn't thought about that, but emotions. But you're right. I mean these basic emotions, there is a suspicion of them, like by smart people or, or you know, by academics or whoever you want to say. Yeah, like like love. Like, you know what I mean? Like like and the weird thing about horror is because it's scary, like I'm far more likely to fall in love and have sex than I am to like fight a zombie. But like being scared, being you know, laughing, like these really basic things, there's a real suspicion of them in art. And and I like sort of grubbing around in the gutter.
0: Right. It's Good. Right, because things like, I mean, like mystery and sci-fi, I mean, they're much more plot or character driven. I mean, there's some emotion in there as well. But.
2: Actually, if you look at the way we classify the genres in um, Joyce Erickson, um Neil Wyatt's book about the genres, the new edition is out. Um, we talk about genres of the intellect and that's where mystery and sci-fi go because they're all about you like either figuring out who done it or looking at moral issues from an extraordinary perspective. So you're absolutely right. They are different. And a lot of times science fiction, fantasy and horror get lumped together because they're speculative. And although that is something they share, that's not what they're all trying to do.
1: And actually, yeah, just sorry to jump back in, but yeah, yeah, and one of the things that's interesting is when you're talking to people, readers, about horror, the first thing they want to know is, is this book scary? But, I don't always think that's what they're actually asking. Like, I can't remember the last time I was scared by a book, but I like the genres. I like the trapping of the genre. I like what it does. And so I'm not sure what pe- what scary's become shorthand for with readers. And I've been trying to figure that out because I feel like it's, it's some immediate experience and relationship they want with the story. And, and, I, and I don't know exactly what it is they're looking for. But I think when they say scary, they don't mean scary.
2: I think they mean they want to tap into that emotion of fear from a place that isn't like current events or like really real. Um, and I feel like I, I think you're right because I've read so many horror books that they don't necessarily scare me. But I do like when they make me feel like, "Ooh, this is uncomfortable. This is different, you know, and I'm Ooh, it's just a feeling that is too easy to have without trying. And it's kind of comforting to like say, I'm going to go search this out. There's something a little illicit about that. Well,
1: maybe, maybe it's this looking, like readers are looking for this tapping into the gut. You know what I mean? They, they can smell a book that reaches down into their gut and gets that reaction, whether it's love or, or fear or whatever it is, and they can tell books that don't. And, and I think for them, maybe that's their BS meter. Is it hitting my gut or not?
2: It's like the same reason I love one of those books that like spontaneously makes you cry and you weren't expecting it, like tears on an airplane and you're like, oh, crap, I'm crying on an airplane. But that's awesome
1: although I do have to say I was on a flight once and this very nice proper woman dressed sort of for church middle aged, sat down next to me I was in the window seat she was in the middle and um, she pulls out uh, Fifty Shades of Grey and starts to read I'm like oh, okay well you know whatever it's like fine, I've read it. Sorry. And I fall asleep, and I wake up halfway through the flight, and she's reading Fifty Shades of Grey, and tears are pouring down her. She's got a wet mark on her blouse. She is weeping uncontrollably over Fifty Shades of Grey. And it was one of the most ama- I was like, I want to be in your head. I want to know what this is doing for you right now.
0: Yeah, I, I, when, when I, I don't read a lot of horror, but when I do, I get heavy anxiety <laughs> so i don't know from this conversation if i'm not dealing with my emotions and maybe that's what we we should draw from this You're <laughs> yeah. um because I, I i i let Becky pick one like a year that i get to read and i read um cabinet Have at the, end, the end, end of the end of the world last year and
2: but, but i warned him it would break him yes and it did <laughs> and then it won the stokers so yes, it, yes, yes well. no, it
0: was a very i always say i can see a well-constructed story and some things are for me <laughs> um I've started reading a few yours. I think yours is a little more on my, because <laughs> you, you got kind of qu- a little bit of the quirky humor in there too, and I, and I, I, I like I like that element. You like that, right? Right, yeah. the, right. As the that one was yeah, dark, 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 dark. <laughs> um, and you also, um, I was looking up online. You just recently done a Stephen King kind of reread of trying to read not everything, but almost everything. You know, not Dark Tower and a couple of other exceptions. Um, after that, I'm sure you've read his stuff before that, but this is a reread for you. Is there anything from this new reread that you've gleaned from his work? And is there anything from his work that you could feel like you can apply to your own work? Anything you learned?
1: You know, so I started doing this reread for Tor, and I was going to do the first 10 books, and it just kept going, and it took me five years. And when I started doing it, I was about to sign the first contract for a horror store. First book I did. By the time I wrapped it up, like, uh Paperbacks from Hell had won The Stoker. I had two books out. I had another, another novel on the way. I had Paperbacks from Hell out. So it, was a lot of, so it was like this hugely tumultuous five years of my life. And the one thing that was con- consistent was reading Stephen King. So he became like my spirit animal. Like I don't actually want to meet the guy because I've got a tiny Stephen King who like, lives on my shoulder. And I, and I like that guy. And so I, I don't want to have to match him up with the real one. It was astonishing to reread his stuff, both because books I loved as a kid, like Salem's Lot. Read it now, I'm like, objectively, this is not a great book. It's, a, it's an entertaining book, but it's not. it's got so many issues with it and problems. But books that I dismissed as a kid, like Cujo, read it now, I'm like, holy crap. On a literary level, this is a wildly ambitious book. Everyone remembers there's a book about the dog and the rabid dog trapping the woman and the kid in the car. That's a third of the book. The other two-thirds is a guy trying to save his advertising company, her husband, and um, a woman try- whose husband owns the dog on a trip out of town trying to decide if she's going like, to get her kid to go back to Maine or not. And so it's these, like it's, it's this amazingly ambitious book, and it's just incredible. So reading this stuff with fresh eyes as an adult— it really showed me that Stephen King is an enormously ambitious writer. He's written books I hate. He's written books I like. But unlike Grisham or um, or Tom Clancy or someone like that, who's like, okay, I'm doing military fiction, you know, men's adventures. I'm doing legal thrillers. Every King book is different. He's written super feminist books from a, one, a woman's point. He's written like YA kind of books. He's written fantasy. He's written art. He really pushes himself. So even the books that I don't like, I really appreciate the ambition. And like, it's funny, I read Tommyknockers when it came out and I was like into Stephen King as a kid and I hated that book. I was like so disappointed. Reading as an adult, it is wild. I mean, it should be up there with fear and loathing in Las Vegas in terms of truly psychedelic slices of Americana.
0: Yeah, because, I, mean, I mean, obviously he mostly has supernatural elements in, in a lot of his books, but he has some that is just, just everyday stuff like Cujo. Again, it's not, it's not a demon dog. I mean, it's a dog that has rabies. And even people are shocked sometimes, I think, when they find out that Shawshank Redemption is him. It's like there's nothing in stereotypical Stephen King in that. But there's very Stephen King's stuff in there if you know sort of the core of his stuff. But it's not, ooh, it's not scary. You know what I mean? <laughs>
1: Well, you know, one of the things I find astonishing about King is, like, so Dolores Claiborne and Gerald's Game, like, you know, say what you want about King. He wrote two books that are actually linked. They were supposed to be one book about... Women in either early middle age or late middle age, sort of dealing with their families and their lives and marriages that, that aren't where they wanted them to be. And, and sometimes the books can be clumsy, sometimes they can't, but man, they are all heart. And to, to see a writer who doesn't have to take a risk like that, and not really a risk, doesn't have to take a chance like that to do it, you're, I mean, you got to admire it. I mean, From a Buick Eight is a really, really long book that's quite honestly, not much happens in it, except Stephen King over and over and over goes, yeah, I don't think stories have any value. Yep, I don't think stories have any value. This book is about how story, a story about how stories have no value. And that's the one where he's like, I'm retiring afterwards. And then he sort of came back because he can't stop writing. But it's, it's amazing to watch him through his life.
0: It's, it's really incredible. Well, is it, That's the one that he wrote right after his accident, wasn't it, where he was... Uh, very seriously injured but that was
2: the he started yeah
0: it's
1: amazing to see his books after his accident you see it creeping in and then by the time you get to Duma Key there are books about pain and there are books where like suddenly all the on the body physical pain descriptions start to feel very acute and make you very uncomfortable and you're like this is a dude who's living with chronic pain and you see it come out of his writing and it's just I don't know it's so amazing to see an author
0: sort of age on the page like that fascinating um, so what kind, of, what kind of things, when you read a book you said you don't often get scared, what does scare you when you're reading a book, does anything scare you in a book?
1: no, book, books don't scare
0: me I, I, you know, like, I, I, just, I love horror novels, I just, I'm, I'm not scared in books So we are here at a library conference, and you are here at a library conference, and you talked before about your love of libraries growing up. How do you use libraries now um, as part of your writing process, maybe, and then how do you work with libraries as an author?
1: You know, I use libraries for research, but a lot of what I'm researching isn't in libraries. Like, these paperbacks just aren't there, and you have to buy them yourself. but I, I often use libraries as sort of safe spaces in New York. Like, they're really nice to, like, just break up your, get out of your office, and I go well, write for a day in the Rose Reading Room at the main branch, or I'll just pick a branch and go. And it's just to shift the environment. And the idea that there are all these rooms all over the city, you can just go. They don't want anything from you. They're not going to sell you anything. You're just there. It's really, it's kind of a really touching idea. Um, But in terms of working with libraries, I love it. Like, um, So I hate author events. I I had to do some, and I'm like, these are miserable. I don't like doing them. No one likes watching these. And so I realized starting with... uh, my best friend's exorcism. I was like, I'm going to do a show. And, and it was rough with best friend's exorcism. Um, you know, and I was doing these things at bookstores and, and stuff. I was dress up like a priest and talk about exorcisms and the satanic panic and all this. And people were like, what the hell is this guy doing? I had these one people, these one group of people came to this bookstore in North Carolina and they were like older. They were probably in their, their sixties, early seventies. And they just stared daggers at me. And then finally they're like, what's your point? And I was like, Oh, okay. First question. Um, and then it turns out that they thought that their niece claimed she was possessed and they had come here because they thought they were going to be getting helpful information to deal with that. So I was like, Oh my God. Okay. Okay. Here's a, and I actually used to work for a, a group that did, did sort of research in parapsychology. So I knew some people to put it there. They're like, these are people who will steer you right. You know, it's not, uh, there's more of a therapy thing. It's not like a paranormal thing. Like, Because uh, there's still, deliverance ministries are huge still, which are basically the Protestant version of exorcism. Anyways, back to libraries. Um, so, but then with Paperbacks from Hell, it got much more polished. And I basically do a show. So it's like an hour show. I've got songs in it. It's like runs an hour, but there's like 197 slides. It. And it's this fast movie thing because I wanted people to have fun and like and I started to learn which libraries to work with like there's some libraries that are like I feel like they're so beaten down by author events they have so many authors come in and it's just sort of a monotone a little bit and then there are other libraries that really do event events and like and so you start to, and, and those places rock I mean they'll do the event at a bar or they'll have like booze on site booze is always for me it's like the brown m&ms if they're gonna offer booze I'm like okay these guys know how to throw a party um, um And it's been so much fun to do because you watch patrons come in and they're like, they expect they're going to hear an author talk about their book and read from it. And I'm up there singing about Nazi leprechauns and skeletons living up to their dreams and doing all this crazy shit. And and, and, and at the end, they're like, oh my God, I don't know what happened. And so, and I do a, so when I did We Sold Our Souls, which is my heavy metal horror novel, I did a whole show about heavy metal and horror and the satanic panic in the 80s and how I wrote the book. And so it's been really, really fun. So the new book I'm doing that's in the spring, I'm doing a true crime show. And it's been a lot of fun. And librarians love it. Once they know what to expect, like once you communicate with them and work with them, they're like, thank God, okay, this will be actually fun. And like, you know, it'll be, I mean, not that their other events aren't fun, but they're like, you know, this is great. We know how to situate this. And it's so much fun to do. And like, it's a I don't know. It's it's. I, it's one of the most gratifying things I I do is go around to all these libraries all over the country and like do these events with them and see how they work.
2: And so, looking at Grady shows from the outside, I have to say that what, as someone who did adult programming for many years and has been there with the author events, you watch the audience when Grady does this. It, like he said, they just. Open up after a few minutes when they figure out what's going on, and and you see they leave with a joy of books, especially with the paperbacks from Hell, because he just really shows affection for these books that have been, you know, spit upon for years. And you get you do get really excited about the Nazi leprechauns and the and the Bigfoot porn and the <laughs> and the, He does have one book that doesn't have porn in it, though. What is the title?
1: Oh, uh, wait, which oh the oh the Spirit, which we're bringing out the one Bigfoot book in which Bigfoot has sex
2: with no one. And it's coming out with, um, there's a whole paperbacks from Hell line now coming out from Valancourt. Yeah, and I think they're, Penguin Random House distributes them, I think. Penguin Random House distributes them. Um, and so they're easy to get for libraries. But, um, but people just open up, and they're like, wow, these are, this is exciting. And to see his enthusiasm for the books, I think gets people excited. Even if they're not excited about those books, it shows them that I can be excited about the books I love, no matter what they are. And probably they're not as low on the rung of popular opinion as the books he's talking about. And it really empowers readers, and it really pushes our, what we're trying to tell people, that you don't have to apologize for your reading tastes, read whatever you want. Um, Grady gets people to just embrace their own enthusiasm for books, and that makes all of us happy.
0: I kind of want to go into the psychology of why Bigfoot doesn't have sex, but we're not going to go into that. <laughs> Um, So let's talk about the Summer Scares program, and that's um, the big thing I want to talk about here, and and Becky and Grady, you guys worked together on starting that. Um, How did that get started in the first place, and what has it kind of become as it's gelled together into an actual program?
2: So we were at StokerCon in Providence Rhode Island yeah two years, ago? two years ago and Grady and I were sitting around with JG Fardy who is the board liaison that works with libraries at the horror writers and, and I've worked a lot with them I'm now the secretary of the horror writers association so we've really done a lot of work with libraries and and Grady literally said why aren't more people reading these books at libraries why are none of these books at libraries how are we going to do this and so I said well summer reading's a big thing and then Grady sort of came up with the idea of well we're going to tell them what to read.
1: Yeah. No, exactly. And, you know, people want recommendations. Like, after I do an event, everyone comes out, what book should I read? You know? And it's like, they want recommendations. We're like, the summer reading list. Let's bring it back. And, um, and, so, and, then, and then we had to actually, like, what does this mean? Like, you know? and, so, and Becky really did a huge amount of work. Like, okay, we're going to do three adult novels, three YA, three middle grade, do the recommendation to librarians. Because also what we realized with it, the HWA is there's all these authors— and there's all these libraries, and somehow the gap isn't getting bridged to bring one to the other. Um, and so that's what we're trying to do.
2: Yeah, it's not just about a recommended reading list. And we, um, there's going to be a link in the show notes with the the web page where we have the books and the um, resources that we've created. But it isn't just about giving the library workers a place to go to find recommendations, although they're appreciating that. It's also about connecting all the authors with their libraries. And so the HWA is really committed to saying, hey, you contact us, you want to do horror. We might not be able to get you Stephen Graham Jones, Tan Anarive and Brian Keene, who are adult authors, but maybe they'll Skype with you, but we can get you a live author in your library who lives near you who is willing to come and talk about these books and horror. And what we've done is we've got a list of books. Um, I'm just going to read them real quick. They're on the. They're in the link, but the adult books, I'll do the adult. You can do the young adult. Uh, Mongrels by Stephen Graham Jones. My Soul to Keep by Tanana Rivedu, Earthworm Gods by Brian Keane.
1: Rotters by Daniel Krause in the YA section. Slasher Girls and Monster Boys. Um, and then uh, Devil and Winnie Flynn by Nicole Ostow.
2: Right, and that middle one, Slasher Girls and Monster Boys, is a collection, and so that's great because has a lot of authors. And then in middle grade, we have Doll Bones by Holly Black, Through the Woods by Emily Carroll, which is an amazing, amazing. graphic yeah. novel. Oh, it is... Fantastic, and she's
1: why she's not bigger. She's uh, yeah. incredible. She
2: did the art and the writing. It's just amazing. And then the jumbies by Tracy Baptiste. And so what we've done then is not only giving you those titles, and those authors have worked with us. Many of them have done an interview with Grady that he provided. It's really funny. They're there. Um, and then they've also um, we've also done three episodes of another podcast. Sorry. Um, ladies Ooh, no. ladies of the Fright <laughs> no, Ladies of the Fright are our podcast partners and we actually, Grady and I stepped away for those and we asked our li- librarian committee members yeah. to give them a chance to shine um, so Carolyn Chesla who is a academic librarian outside Chicago talked about the adult books um, Kelly Jensen who does works at Book Riot and is a young adult librarian did the YA and then Kira Parrott who um, works at Library Journal School Library Journal and what's great about these podcasts is not only do they, t- they book talk the books for the librarians so you don't have to read them if you're scared um, and they talk about each book and why people want to read it but they also talk about working with readers at all those levels I want to really point out Kira's um, third podcast and all of those are at the link in the show notes where she really talks about the big question like how do I tell parents it's okay to give these books to their kids and she was a children's librarian for many years and loves horror and really really worked on that very well very much and then we have lists like Grady and I are suggesting books and read likes for the titles and there's just a lot of information because the point is horror is fun to read people like it let's get it in people's hands
1: you know and one of the things is like oh, so I'm eternally a, a frustrated teenager like on the inside and, and I remember being a kid who like I loved libraries I loved all that but I didn't The stuff I wanted to read, I didn't feel welcome. You know what I mean? On some level with what I wanted to read in the sort of the outside world, I sort of had to hide in my room to read it and all that. Horror really reaches reluctant readers. And horror really reaches... It reaches girls, reaches boys a lot. And it reaches girls who think that there's nothing there for them or whose image of fiction might be sort of goody-two-shoes. It really reaches kids who are sometimes hard to reach. And it's amazing the... I always felt like as a kid, I wanted to read stuff I wasn't supposed to read. I wanted to read things that felt like I wasn't allowed to read them, and I wanted to read up. And you know, and so I feel like hard is that for a lot of kids. For a 14-year-old kid to read something like Stephen King's It or uh, Stephen Graham Jones' Mongrels or Daniel Krause's Rotters, you feel like you're reading something you're not supposed to be reading, and you're like, an adult gave this to me? Like This is goes against everything adults are supposed to do. And so it's really like... There's something about horror that I think is like pulls people in is inclusive, especially with kids.
2: And the other thing is, you know, we know from research in the library world that horror is a genre that and this pun is intended, but that they're scared of that library workers are scared of. There was a research done by um, Library Journal and Rusa and novelists that showed this. It was like the third or fourth genre that librarians were scared of. And so because if they're not comfortable with it themselves they're not they're not sure how to give it how to hand sell it out to people and so what we're trying to provide during summer and we're calling it summer scares but you can read horror all year long but the idea is at your busiest time when people are coming into the library already and adults in larger numbers are reading for more leisure here are lists you can make displays there are titles in your back pocket that you can confidently give out that we are saying are that these experts in the library world and in horror are saying are okay they're safe for you to give out. We're helping you book talk them. We're helping you understand it. And now don't be afraid. Just do it. You don't have to read them yourself.
1: Well, And, that's, and just to jump in for a sec, but that's one of the things that's been really interesting. So reading all these books for paperbacks from hell, you know... There was a very different ex- approach to sex and sexuality on the page in 1974 than there is now, and you know, there's there's some of it's just flat-out misogyny, and some of it's just sort of a, a sort of like um, a, a pat you on the head sort of like sexism, you know. And, and one of the things that's been nice doing summer scares and doing uh, the slime with Valancourt is we're finding the books that aren't going to squick you out. You're not going to get to a book that like s- suddenly everyone's getting raped by tentacle monsters. Like we're finding books that are inclusive. We're finding books that like don't put their feet wrong and there are plenty of them out there but the problem is if you just reach out randomly who knows what your hand's going to bring back and we're saying it is safe to put your hand in this dark hole like it's full of nice soft bunnies not scorpions
0: (laughs) Well, and and speaking of that, how did you guys pick the books that you picked? What was was the decision process there? A lot of arguing.
2: (laughs) So what we did was, you know, that we all live all over the country, so we did have a couple Skype calls, but one of the things we did was we just, I just started a shared Google Doc, and we did a brain dump. We're like... So here are some of our rules, though. We did say the books had to be at least two years old. We don't want libraries to have to buy brand-new titles, hardcover books. They had to be easily available through regular distribution services to libraries. Um, so we couldn't pick, like, super indie, hard-to-find titles. Um, then we said, okay, so we're looking for that sweet spot of, like, two to five years ago. We wanted to make sure the authors were alive so they could participate. Um, and that was that, which made us sad in some ways, but it makes more sense. And then finally, we were using the Book Riot um, in- inclusivity rules, which are that they will not publish any lists that are not at least 50% men, women, and at least 33% own voices. So we started from there, and we literally did a brain dump.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, the stuff we came back with, I mean, you know, Steve's book, Mongrel, I mean, Steve's an amazing author. And like the fact that Mongrels is going out to people, like that book never got the attention it deserved. Daniel Krauss's Rotters is like, it is the most anti-social punk rock Molotov cocktail. Whoever said this is YA and we should market it this way should be fired. It is. It's won awards. Yeah, I know. It's an, I read that book and I was like, holy cow, this got, pu- I mean, it's amazing. And then stop, you know, Brian, like it's so much fun to push Brian, who's like a total pulp complete pulp old 30s writer almost who's like just writing with a modern sensibility.
2: And one of the things about, that was a good point with the Brian Keene, we wanted to make sure we did represent, at least in the adult, a little bit of that more hardcore pulp horror aspect. We didn't want to ignore it. Um, and it's it's less, I think Rodgers does it in YA. And then in in the in the middle grade, it's a little bit less, obviously, there. But the thing with Brian Keene was we knew we wanted a title by him. He's a great author. He promotes lots of new authors. Um, and when we were looking at them, actually, Greg Fardy, J.G. Fardy, the writer who was our consultant with HWA, mentioned Earthworm Gods. And I realized... So, so step back a little. Brian Keane is extremely famous for The Rising. It's his zombie novel. It's credited with The Walking Dead and 28 Days Later starting the new zombie craze. They all came out within three months of each other. And I knew The Rising was a book people knew. But Earthworm Gods, when I thought about it, it's these literally like the earth. It's, it's the original cli from this range. The, it's raining. It's, it won't stop raining. The earth is flooding. And these giant earthworms are coming out. And they are attacking. And it is great. I actually, secret, I think the second book in the series is better. And so does he, but we can't give a second book in a series. So. And also,
1: I have to say, Emily Carroll's Through the Woods is like just nightmare-inducing. And, it was, and it's such a great, it's such a beautifully done book. And it's so, I mean, it reminds me of Angela Carter or someone, you know, like, it just taking fairy tales and making them, putting the, putting the teeth back in them.
0: Um, so how, how did you choose who was going to be on the committee? I mean, obviously, it was kind of your idea, so it was like, well, we're putting ourselves on the committee. <laughs> but how did you expand beyond that?
2: Sure. So I, that was actually, Grady said he would be our celebrity spokesperson, which we really appreciate it since it was his idea. And we're going to try to keep that up next year, celebrity spokesperson. So we really brainstormed who we wanted our partners to be. And so once we realized we wanted to partner with both library groups, so we also partnered with United for Libraries, which the HWA already works with to bring authors there. And I am a member of United for Libraries myself. Um, I was looking for people who were good in YA And in Children's. Because that's really my... I I know YA a little. And so my first thought was with Children's, I contacted Kira at Library Journal. And I said, look, I know you love horror. I know you do. You did Children's. And, you know, you work at School Library Journal. And she was just through the moon. Of course, I will do anything you need, Becky. Let's just do this. And then we did get Library Journal to agree to be part of it. So they are publishing things for us for, you know, we we give them content and they push it out. And then for YA, I actually was talking to... um, Kelly Jensen, who I've known for years, about her partner who she podcasts with, and I forget his name right now, on her Hey YA podcast, who's an author and an agent um, in YA. And he w- wanted to do it, but was a little too busy with other things. So Kelly did offer to help us out. Um, and then I needed um, a wild card, I thought. And so I called Carolyn. Carolyn. Um, I also did need some representation of people of color, too. And I needed a wild card, though. And Carolyn is a friend of mine for years. Um, I liked her academic credentials as a um, dean of a community college library in the Chicago suburbs. She really um, understands that academic component, and the HWA liked that. But also, she's a hardcore horror reader. She reviews horror. Um, She loves it. It's just in her bones. It's what she does. And um, I asked her, and I told her, I was like, Carolyn... I want you to be my wild card. And she's like, this is the greatest honor ever to be the wild card. So we just tried to build and, and I wanted people to come from different experiences and bring it. And then Grady's just vast knowledge of, of everything. And we've had him do some older lists too of like the people that aren't around.
1: Yeah, well that was I was the one who cried like a like a like a little baby when we said we could had to do living authors. I was like, no, why isn't Shirley Jackson on this? Um, but you know, and one of the things that's been interesting with doing this is sort of being I know there's, I think for librarians it's a no-brainer, things like diversity and inclusion. But I think in the general sort of world, people say, oh, it's quota filling and all this. But I want new stories. I want new authors. I want to find new stuff. And so it's really being like sort of put in a position where like, okay, we've got to find some more authors of color, or more female authors, or gay authors it stretches my boundaries and makes me find new stories. Like, I I know what white guys have to say. I am one, you know? Like, but I want to find the new stuff. And so that's been one of the things that's really been great about this because doing paperbacks from hell One of the things that was fascinating to me is, in the 70s and 80s, up until the early 90s, there were very, very few uh, authors of color who were writing any of this stuff, and I know they're out there. I don't know where they are. I am digging for them. You know, I think they might have published in magazines more, or, or, you know, Holloway House, which is a big African-American publishing house. It was a huge exploitation rip-off factory, but it's had, out of its vast list over decades, had three horror novels. I'm like, this is impossible. These writers have to be there. So to read more modern authors, which is hard for me to do because I'm always back in the 80s and 70s, now I'm getting to read the authors of color and things. And it's just amazing. that It feels new. It feels like a whole door is open in a room of the genre I didn't know existed or, or just walked past before.
2: And I think you brought it up before, but Stephen Graham Jones is a great example. Um, Stephen Graham Jones is this author. I mean, we were talking about him last night um, at dinner. He's, he's an amazing human being, but he's such a great author. He is so prolific. The stuff he writes is just, it blows your mind. And Mongrels is a great example of a book that, he was out, it's out by HarperCollins. It just, it got, a, it got noticed. It got some accolades, but it just isn't getting the, the, the readership that it deserves. I mean, it is, I tell people, yes, it's a werewolf novel. But it's also a story of the underclass in America right now and how they live and what life is like. And he just writes with such beauty about really horrific things. Oh, and he also likes to say he, every book he writes and every story is an excuse to feature a really cool car. So if you like cars, you should read his books. But like, that's a great example of an author that more people should be reading and knowing about.
1: Well, and one of the funny things is years ago, I kind of stayed away from Steve's stuff because it was marketed almost as literary fiction rather than horror. And reading his stuff, I, when I started reading his stuff, I was like, oh, my God, this is just like sort of like balls out, bare knuckled writing I like, really muscular, really detail oriented, really set in the South where I'm from, although Texas, which, you know, separate part of the South. But like I was like, this is what I wanted to be reading. But it wasn't, the way it was marketed wasn't reaching me. So, you know, having him on this list is a way to sort of say to people, put it in their hands.
2: And I also like that, although he's a Native American, it's not explicitly in all his books, but it's, a, but it's coming from a perspective that is different than mine. But I do have to say, if you really want to read a great, um, blatantly Native American-influenced story by him, Mapping the Interior, it's a tour novella. You want to read something that's going to scare you, Steve. Um, this book is an amazing story of two brothers, and it's, it's a family, but two brothers specifically. And it, does, it is on a reservation, which he doesn't always do. And uh, it, was, it blew me away. It did win the Stoker for best novella. It is one of the best novellas I've ever read in my life
0: and that's the thing about having own voices not things is that you don't necessarily need to read a book with only those characters everybody in the book is a Native American everybody in the book is African American it's getting their the author's experience of the world is just a different point of view yeah. like you said I'm also a white guy I know what I think about I've read that for my whole life so <laughs> let's see something else yeah Challenge ourselves,
1: you know, and also a lot of the best stories are, are out in the margins because they haven't been told yet. I mean, the, the fact that you know, all through the twentieth, first half of the twentieth century, even into the sixties and seventies, there were green books, which was an alternate guidebook to America for African American families, so they knew where it was safe to go to hotels and towns on vacation. That's a fascinating story: the story of Chinatowns in America and the Chinese coming to America and, and how they were treated and what they found here. What happened to these Native American and First Nations uh, uh, tribes? These are Fascinating stories. I want to read them. I want to have them put through a horror lens. But we need those writers, you know, and we need to be able to find them.
2: Because I cannot get away without giving a book recommendation. So if you want to read a story with the green book that's a horror book, read Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff, which starts with the green book and is actually this great Lovecraft pastiche. It's, It's going to be a TV show. So there you go
0: do not see the green book, the movie anyway. <laughs> um, also,
1: also, as a Southerner, I, w- I looked at the trailer for green book, the movie, and as a Southerner, the way Vigo Mortensen eats fried chicken, uh, uh, like it's an apple offends uh, me on such a primal level. I, I can't ever see that movie.
0: <laughs> so to, to kind of wrap up, what, what is your pitch to libraries and librarians to embrace this and maybe broaden out of for horror in general What's something that we can do to pitch it to them that that they have that idea of maybe the 80s slasher movie and that's all horror is and they don't want to see this stuff. What's the pitch to have them get involved with this?
2: So know that we have library uh, professionals and authors working to help you sort through the masses. Like Grady said, that dark hole, you're reaching into a hole that's been sort of pre-approved, right? Books we know will work. But here's the thing you need to do. You don't believe us. You're scared to sort of hand sell them. Put up some displays. Put up some displays of horror books and say, you know, scary reads. You don't have to use the H word if you don't want to. But put just put them on display. Put them face out somewhere. Put Use our graphics from not the... Just in October. And not just in October. All year long. Use the graphics. I recently linked the folder. Um, Greg Chapman, who's a Australian horror author, did our graphics for us. And I have all the graphics that you can use and download. They're on that link. Um, you can get all of them. Put that graphic up with Summer Scares. Just put the books out. And I'm seriously just sit back, cross your legs, and watch them go out.
1: Yeah, and the two things I would say is, one is trust us. Like, we're not going to put a book in your hands that's either a dud or that's going to cause you problems, unless problems were going to occur with some book anyways, because of crazy people. Um, but, But the second thing is horror is so much bigger than people think it is. And and I think a lot of librarians know this. I think the generation of librarians that's coming up now, a lot of them grew up in the 90s and went to college in the 90s, high school in the 90s. And the 90s was really when horror changed. It was when Buffy was huge and Charmed and Supernatural was started, or Supernatural a little later, but, you know, Angel and, and the X-Files. And people started to realize horror wasn't just gross monsters. Horror could be romantic. Horror could be funny. Horror could be sad. Horror could be smart. And I think That audience, and and that's the audience of librarians that are out there now, realize that it could be so much more. And I feel like publishing is sort of playing catch up a little to where they are. And those books are coming out now, but they weren't there for a while. TV and movies really carried the banner for a while. And I feel like publishing's caught back up, so geez, give us a chance. Yeah,
0: I mean, movies and TV, like you said, kind of showed that. I mean, for horror, Walking Dead was a huge hit. Um, Game of Thrones, (laughs) obviously, a huge fantasy thing. something called Star Wars I don't know if people have ever heard of that that's that's some nerd talk that's a very specialized audience
2: Um,
0: but anyway um, thank you guys both for talking to me today for the podcast and um, I will go do some therapy and then I can read some more horror books
2: find your fears and then find the books that work for those
0: alright thanks a lot guys thank you thanks Circulating Ideas is produced by Steve Thomas in the suburbs of Atlanta Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place or work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice, and help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at Cirque Ideas or like the show's Facebook page. Music is by Pamela Klicka. Thanks for listening and keep circulating your ideas. To get 10% off your first purchase and a free demo, visit goelibrary.com and use that promo code podcast. That's goelibrary.com promo code podcast.